This week's Hunt and Land podcast is brought to you by the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Take a minute to listen to this special message. Turkey season is here. It's time to listen for those gobblers. Remember to game check your harvest. Your game check data will help manage one of Alabama's favorite game birds. Hunt safe and enjoy the season. Remember to do your part. Game check. Brought to you by the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. For more information, visit our website at outdooralabama.com. This is Hunting Land, the podcast for landowners and land hunters with how to's for habitat management and land investment. If you own, manage, or dream of owning land, this is the podcast for you. Clint, my weekend was not what was expected. I did not hear a single gobble. Uh, from everybody I've talked to uh, around the around the southeast, really, it sounded like it was a pretty slow weekend with regards to turkeys doing much talking. But good side of that is a lot of times that can mean that April is going to be really good. You know, once the hens get on their nest, we talked with Ryan Basinger about that last week. Uh, once those hens get on their nest and, and they're kind of done mating, those gobblers get lonely and it, and it can really make for an action-packed April. So I'm excited. I wish the weekend would have gone better. I had some folks in town that were hunting with me and, and we didn't have much action, but hey, that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. I'm excited about today's show, man. This is something, this is the time of year when controlled burns and prescribed fire is, is we're kind of getting to the last little window when, when you're able to do it. So today on the show, we've got Ted DeVos with Bach and DeVos Forestry and Wildlife Services. And these guys burn tens of thousands of acres, have burned tens of thousands of acres around the Southeast and you know, they've got some different techniques that are important when it comes to wildlife and, and really burning for the purposes of enhancing wildlife habitat. Clint, did you guys do any burning on your property this year? We've been trying to. All this rain that we've gotten in the past few months, really last year, has affected us because we're in a pretty flat area that's slow to drain, but we're working on it. Well, Let's get right into it with Ted. Ted, welcome to the show. So today we are going to be talking about something that you are deeply involved with, and that's controlled burns, but but more specifically, the techniques that you guys use to enhance wildlife habitat, whether we're talking about quail, deer, turkeys. Uh, you guys have done a tremendous amount of burning. Tell me a little bit about uh, about Bach and DeVos and what, uh, what all services you guys provide and, uh, and what you're doing right now. Yeah, we're uh, Bach and DeVos Forestry Wildlife Services based out of Montgomery. You know, we try to provide services to our primary client as a recreational landowner, although we have, you know, guys that are straight timber and, and that type of thing. But we do timber management services, cruising, valuation, timber sales, things like that. We do a lot of, uh, we run a couple of woodland mulchers. So we do a lot of clearing work, mulchers, trying to clear understories or get site prep work done. We do a lot of site preparation and tree planting as well, herbicides, understory treatments. And, and then, of course, do a lot of prescribed burning, you know, with two of us pretty much burning uh, this time of year. I mean, that's our full-time thing. We're trying to get after it with this weather's right. We run about, you know, 10,000, uh, maybe up to 12 in a good year, uh, 1,000 acres of prescribed burning. I'm also heavily involved with the uh, Prescribed Fire Council in Alabama. We've got a website, Alabama Prescribed Fire Council, ALPFC.com, I believe, so we can Google that. And, you know, with our uh, company itself, you know, we've got not only a website, uh, bachandvoss.com, but we've got 
been updated this time of year with uh, you know prescribed burn videos, time lapses, uh, a lot of photographs, things like that. You know, just to folks that are uh, interested in looking at what's going on out there can uh, see some videos of you know that type of activity going on. Well, Ted, for the folks that that uh, are maybe new to prescribed fire. Tell, let's talk a little bit about pros and cons. First off, why do we want to burn? I mean, what's what are the real real benefits to the to the landowner or the guy that's managing land with regards to not only wildlife but also timber? And there's a couple of facets to that whole thing. You know, the, the benefit side from an aesthetic standpoint. You know, again, a lot of our landowners, recreational landowners, they like the property to look pretty, and prescribed burning uh, does that. Some folks don't like the look right after a burn. I kind of like it myself. You know, I'm a big pro burner, but it maintains a you know pretty grassy understory. It maintains those vistas and those views across the property. You know, burning around ponds and things like that allows you to see the pond through the wood. So, from an aesthetic standpoint, I think it, it provides you know a ton of benefit to a landowner to make the property look better. From a uh, wildlife perspective, it's probably the most cost efficient way of providing high quality habitat to you know any of the species that we manage uh in the deep southeast and as far as you know trying to grow those grassy understories forbs legumes food plants nesting cover brood rearing cover all those things are benefited by regular prescribed burn intervals uh, depend upon the species you know for quail for instance maintaining a two-year burn uh, return interval is pretty much integral to trying to maintain a, a wild quail population. Even if preseason release or, you know, pen raised quail to try and maintain that character of huntable quail ground, uh, burning is, you know, pretty much a necessity. From a, you know, deer and turkey standpoint, they've got bigger home ranges, you know, a return interval of more on the line of three, maybe four years of trying to keep the pine stand burned, you know, keeps that for turkeys, keeps that nest and cover in a condition that, that the hens use it readily provides good protection for nests so the predator rates, you know, predation rates are not that high. And then those burn blocks that are kind of next to the nesting cover provide brood habitat for the poults to bug in during the summertime and provide that, you know, uh, protection for a hen to, you know, have a brood running around where they're kind of under the cover and she can be standing around looking out, watch for, make sure no predators come and get them. Deer, same kind of thing. You got to think about these animals all live in that you know, three to four foot strata at the bottom of a forest. Everybody looks up the pine trees, but these critters are living close to the ground and trying to maintain that ground cover is you know, super important from a, from a wildlife perspective. So, you know, the, the promotion, especially legumes uh, for deer is a high quality food source for deer uh, in the summertime. Fawning cover, you know, your best fawning cover is those broom straw, grassy areas and things like that. So that's the benefit side. From a timber as well, there's, there's benefits from a timber standpoint. The negative side is if you burn stuff up too hot or you burn it the wrong time of year or you, you know, aren't burning correctly, you can either scorch and damage timber, you can kill timber, or from a wildlife perspective, you can isolate critters in a thousand acre burn, for instance, which is way bigger than the home range of a deer or certainly a quail. You can isolate those critters in a burned environment where they're not going to leave and they end up getting eaten up by hawks or foxes or whatever. Well, with that in mind, what what's the ideal time of year to burn, Ted? You know, most burning is going to be done from December, the wintertime burns, December through this time of year, end of March, first part of April. 
I would say the bulk, probably 80% of the burning done in the deep southeast is done during that time frame. Traditional time frame, weather conditions and, and fuel conditions are real conducive to you know regular burning this time of year. There's been a trend towards more growing season burns recently, and which we you know take advantage of and, and do a lot of it. We have been for the last 10 years or so doing a lot of growing season burns in you know starting really in April when the sweet gum leaves fill out on the shrubs and uh, burning in through. We've had understory burns in August, even the summer. And depending upon your objectives, the type of fuels you're dealing with, type of timber stands, growing season burns fit the bill for things like, you know, sweet gum control. If you're not going to use herbicides to control sweet gums, running a growing season burn through a stand will knock back sweet gums at a much higher rate, a much better top kill, and a much larger diameter and height of a sweet gum, for instance. So, you know, winter burn might knock back a three-foot sweet gum back to the dirt. A summer burn might knock back a 20-foot sweet gum back to the dirt. Why, so why is that? Careful with those. Well, the trees are fully leafed out. They're used up all their root resources, and so they're more susceptible to a fire in the first place. That's, that's the first thing. But the other thing is that, you know, when you got 80-degree ambient air temperature, the ability to scorch that cambium layer which is you know just beneath the bark is that live layer that transports nutrients and, and moisture from the roots to the top of the tree. It's uh, it's a lot easier to get the temperature to that high mortality temperature on the canopy. So you'll you may brown up the leaves, but two weeks later that sweet gum that's two inches in diameter is dead at the top. Now it doesn't root kill any of these, and so you know people think yeah we can control sweet gums and kill them with a fire. It's just not going to kill sweet gums with regular burning. You, gotta, you want to kill them, you got to spray them. But if you want to keep them under control, you can do that with later uh, burns that you know get a better top kill, and they'll try and re-sprout. The other thing is that if you top kill a sweet gum in August, it doesn't have much time to re-flush by the end of the summer. When the frost then gets it, knocks it back again, and it depletes root resources pretty quickly, and it keeps them in a uh, less dominant uh, position in the understory. keeps them smaller. So... I would say that one of the most important aspects and you were talking about was one of the cons of, of burns is that, you know, you can kill trees. They can, they can get away from you. So safety, not only for the trees is important, but, but also the, the guys managing the fire, uh, that has to be paramount. The community around the fire, where the fire is being prescribed and also the wildlife themselves. Yeah. You talked a little bit about an ideal time of year. What about conditions? If we're looking at a certain window of time, what types of things do you guys look for that would say, look, we're not going to burn today because of X? This time of year, it would be probably really low humidity or high wind speed would probably you know get us to a situation where we go, well, we're probably not going to burn today. We burned in some pretty high wind speeds before. If you're safe and secure and you've got a hardwood drain on the downwind side, you know your fire's not going to get away from you. You can burn in pretty high wind speed. The low humidity, when it gets down in the low 20s and upper teens, and I've been doing this a long time, um, I get real spooky about burning in, in those low humidities because weird things happen. It throws brands a long way across fire lines. So, you know, in that 25% above, you know, pretty much anybody can burn. You start getting in the low 20s and upper teens, you know, even I pretty much call it and just go, I'm not going to burn in those volatile conditions. And a lot depends on, you know, time since last rain, what the ground conditions like. 
you know, uh, how much fuel is there, what type of fuel it is. You got to really all of it. You know, even for instance, today, you know, it's going to be a breezy day. A lot of people, we're not going to see the number of permits we did yesterday. Yesterday, I had 260 permits in the afternoon in the state of Alabama, and that's a pretty big number. Today, I'd be surprised if I get a permit over 100 when I finally call it in. But, you know, the track we're burning today needs a high breeze day. We need probably 10, 15 miles an hour to carry the fire through the, this primarily pine straw. Uh, been thinned about two years ago, so there's not a whole lot of fuel out there, and I need a lot of breeze to push that fire across the stand we'll burn it in. So we typically have so many tracks that are ready to burn. You know, we'll get up in the morning, my partner and I'll, you know, make a phone call and say, all right, which, you know, which is going to be the best track for the condition that we've got today. And, you know, if it's uh, something that's full of sweet gums and fairly good fuel, you know, we'll wait until April or May to try and burn something like that. If it's an open piney wood with a lot of broom straw, you know, either probably already burned or something we can burn on just about any fuel condition day. And so it's just a matter of reading what your conditions are and, you know, what fuel types and track conditions are best for those, you know, weather conditions that you're dealing with. Ted, what about wildlife? So one of the things I'm thinking is, you know, right off the bat is turkeys, they're nesting on the ground. How does a burn affect them? Do you really have to avoid burning at a certain time or... Can you burn effectively during a nesting period? You can. Uh, you do have to make considerations for stuff like that. And that's probably the biggest concern from a wildlife perspective. You're not going to catch a deer in a fire unless you're burning in July when the fawns are on the ground. If they're more than two or three days old, they'll get out of the way of a fire. I've got a dog in the back of my truck. He'll be burning with us today. And, you know, the eating will get caught up in a fire. So uh, birds, obviously, they fly turkeys, quail, they'll fly out of fire. So you're not going to catch an adult animal in a burn unless it's just a holocaust, you know, fire you shouldn't be around in the first place. But nesting critters is a totally different story. And what you hear all the time, growing season burns um, overall don't have a negative effect on turkey nesting, for instance, because turkeys tend to re-nest after a nest has been destroyed. You're already losing you know, nest to the tune of about 50%. So out of every, you know, 100 nests that are laid in the woods, 50 of them are going to get eaten by a predator anyway. So the loss of another nest here or there doesn't really have that big of an effect. And that's generally true. But, you know, if we're, if we've got a track that I know is going to be good turkey nesting habitat, it's three-year rough, it's got a mixture of some pine straw and broom straw and shrubbery, hadn't been burned, let's say, in three years, got turkeys around it. I don't have anything else that's great nesting cover. I'm probably not going to burn that thing in April and May. I'm just going to leave it alone and let the turkeys nest through it. And, you know, maybe in the first part of June, I might try and burn through that stuff if I really need to burn it. But we're going to try to avoid those high-quality nesting cover spots during the prime nesting season. The other drawback, though, is that turkeys are nesting right now. And they've been breeding for a week or two. You know, I can just about guarantee you there's nests right now that are being laid into. There's probably no incubation yet, but uh, we're getting close to those first nests being incubated. And so that really limits you, especially for folks like us, with, you know, 10, 12,000 acres to burn. We've got to take advantage of every burning day somewhere. And so if you consider that, you know, by the middle of March, turkeys are nesting and late nests might be in June, that takes out the whole burning season. So there's always that risk. And 
you know, from quail perspective, the same thing. I would avoid those time frames in places that I know quail are going to nest or I know that broods are going to be running around. I'm going to try to avoid burning during those risky time frames for that particular critter. And, and it goes back to what we talked about the other day, too, about size, block size. That, that has a big part to play in this as well that, you know, I think there's, I don't know if there's a trend to it or not, but I do see a lot of people talking about, you know, we burned 1,000 acres. We burned 1,600 acres today. You know, had a big burning day. And some of the uh, national forests are notorious for that, burning large blocks. And it's the same issue. You end up isolating critters out there in those big burn blocks, especially quail. We did radio telemetry work 20 years ago when I was doing quail research. And we put radios on and follow them around. You burn a big block of, let's say, 300 acres. The quail that are in that 300 acres don't have any cover left. They're not leaving. They don't know any place else. That's been their home range their whole life. So they're not leaving for the next unburned block next door, especially for thousands. And what ends up happening is mortality rate goes through the roof. And hawks move in. They find those quail that are exposed. Same thing would happen to you know, turkeys and things like that. Is those critters that are left inside a burned out area on these you know, blocks that are basically too big uh, end up having a high mortality rate. And then you take away, again, from a turkey standpoint, burn a thousand acres. There's no nesting cover left in that thousand acres. And where do they go to nest? Deer, the same thing. A thousand acre burn block, where are they going to put the fawns you know, when they start dropping fawns? You've got to make that consideration to leave some type of cover left for the critters inside those large burn blocks. And, you know, if we're doing quail management, we're doing juxtaposition of 20 acre burn blocks you know side by side maybe 38 we're doing pretty much deer turkey management we're trying to limit our block size to you know 50 to 150 acres type of thing and try and leave unburned next to burn type stuff how often should you burn a stand every year every three years i mean what's the what's the going rate these days we don't burn anything on an annual basis rarely do you get the fuel build up you need to get a good fire one year after you burned it. And so, you know, we usually, on a quail place, for instance, we'll burn on a two-year rotation in most cases. Sometimes we'll let it roughen up for a third year uh, to get a little bit thicker cover, a little bit better burning fuel. From a deer turkey standpoint, you know, it's pretty much anywhere from a three-year to a five-year return interval to try and burn primarily pine stands and to try and keep those things in good shape. Um, especially if you spray the sweet gums out, you don't have to worry about the sweet gums taking off and, and, and you know, establishing uh, too tall a shrubbery that you can't control it with fire. And that's that's the big thing is don't let things get away so far that you can't burn it back. So that's kind of the rotation we work with. And most of our properties, you know, if it's an upland pine stand, at some point in time during a you know two to five year period, it's going to have fire. And we'll run, run that rotation through the whole property every year, burn summer rather than you know, trying to burn a lot of it one year and then have two or three years no fire. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be continuing to talk about controlled burns with Ted DeVos. Hey, guys, we get a lot of landowners that want to know, how much is my land really worth? We've recorded a video series to explain exactly how we determine that. Just head over to landhunting.com go to get the series. I'm confident it will help you achieve your land goals. And we're back. Today we are talking with Ted DeVos with Bach and DeVos. So, Ted, it, it sounds like 
you've got landowners that, that have different objectives uh, with regards to the type of wildlife that, that they're trying to manage for. If you've got a guy that wants to improve his quail habitat, he's going to want to burn uh, smaller blocks more frequently than a guy who's managing for deer and turkeys. He's going to be burning a little bit larger block a little less frequently. Yep. You mentioned setting up these blocks and trying not to burn any blocks uh, adjacent to each other. How do you accomplish that? Because, and and maybe I'm just got it thinking about it wrong in my head, but I mean, is that possible on every property to, to set it up where you are, you're able to isolate each particular block or is it, does it just have to be adjoining say on one side to a block that hasn't been burned? It it, it can be tough. So you've got, let's say a thousand acres of homogenous quail habitat maybe broke up by some stringer drains and no wide hardwood drains in reasonable road system. You can on paper break that up into 20 to 30 acre blocks fairly easily. But is it possible to not burn this 20 acres next to that 30 acres one year? And, and it's probably not. It's just it's just like a piece of a puzzle that you know trying to get them kitty corner to each other is almost impossible. So you do the best you can. The big thing when I'm looking at a burn block for a particular property on a particular year, if I'm doing quail stuff, is if I do have two burn blocks side by side to each other, you know, do I have, let's say, uh, 200 yards from the middle of the burn to unburned cover? If I can keep that figure somewhere around there, then I know my quail, you know, they can move out of that block. It could be, it could be 500 acres. But if it's only 400 yards wide, I'm not isolated by birds. They can move outside, you know, that couple hundred yard zone. And so when I'm when I've got stuff adjacent to each other like that, as long as it's narrow, I'm okay with. It. But it's, it's a matter of looking at it, figuring out, you know, am I putting together two or three blocks together that all of a sudden I've isolated my quail in a 200 acre burn block, even though it's three burn blocks put together. And then same with a turkey. You know, if I've got 250 acre blocks put together and all of a sudden I've got a 300 acre burn block, then I'm probably going to think twice about it, maybe adjust my, my burning regime block to block and keep them from being too isolated. All right. Well, no discussion of, of any kind of land improvement can be had without talking about the costs of doing it. Very few guys have unlimited budgets. You know, so every, every dollar we spend is a, is a dollar we can't spend on something else. So let's talk a little bit about the costs of, of, of a controlled burn. Uh, what are, what are the ranges? Say on low end, high end. What's it going to cost to burn an acre of land? If you've got a manager on site that can burn, obviously that cost is going to be you know part of paying your manager is south. So from that standpoint, it's probably going to be pretty reasonable. You know, it's just a matter of equipment and time, and hard to figure out what that actual per acre cost is. But from a contract burning standpoint, if I've got a place that's a solid quail place for instance uh broom straw fairly open piney wood easy to control good road systems across the board our contract rate would be pretty reasonable in the let's say ten dollar an acre range maybe you know somewhere in that ballpark if i've got something that's more complex and you know tougher to burn smaller blocks you know rough stuff that hadn't been burned before you know our rates might go up as five you know as high as like 15 bucks now that's us, and we try and burn local. We're real particular about who we burn for, and you know we're just uh, not burning for everybody. 
if you're out there contracting with the forestry commission, for instance, you're probably going to pay about 15 bucks. I think is what the rate is, maybe 18 bucks an acre or something like that. And that rate on private guys can go up as high as 20, 25 bucks. So a lot of it depends on who's doing the burning and what their charge rate is to, to try and you know, get your stuff done. Expand that out across the place and you've got a three-year or four-year burn regime on your property and in a thousand acres of burnable ground running on a three-year rotation at $15 an acre, your cost across your property on an annual basis is about five bucks. You know, you spread that out across the whole property. So, you know, that starts to get, uh, sounds a little bit more reasonably priced. And if you don't have fire lanes installed already, what would you say a, a reasonable rate would be to have those installed, you know, per acre or per mile, however you approach that? Yeah, that it depends so much on, you know, what you're pushing. You got to push with a bulldozer, something like that. Uh, if those fire lanes already been in there and can you just scream down them with a bulldozer at three miles an hour and just sweep that thing out? Or do you have to push up trees and have you got deep terrain to deal with? what kind of road system you're working with it tells you a lot about how many fire lanes you've got to put in. That's a, it's not an expensive cost in general. It doesn't cost that much to get the fire lanes established with a bulldozer. And once they're in, they're fairly easy to sweep back out. If you're running a disc, you know, it's obviously going to be cheaper if your fire lanes are there already. So, I mean, that, that's a real hard one to pin down. It's not, it's not something you can put on a per acre basis because, uh, you know, this one property you can burn primarily off roads and, drains and you need one you know quarter mile fire lane and the other property is you know you need a fire lane around the whole thing because it doesn't have any road to drain it. you know so it's a hard one to yeah so they're new to the process it's not cost prohibitive not really no once you get them in they're permanent it sounds like once you yeah once you get them established you may have a little bit of upfront cost but once you get them established it's a it's a maintenance thing at that point exactly that's right well let's talk a little bit about uh you know, programs that exist. So uh, are there any programs that exist for landowners that can help them with the cost of a controlled burn? Um, I know there's a lot out there for, there for guys that are reestablishing long leaf. Is, is that part of it? Or is that just in the, the seeding? What, what, what exists? You know, typically talk to the NRCS There's and the Department of Conservation both. I think they both have programs that uh, assist people with burning. You're right. Uh, long leaf you have a much better chance of getting the cost share for doing long leaf burning, especially if it's already programmed long leaf that's been planted under NRCS programs or something like that. But there's often uh, other cost share programs available for landowners that will assist you with uh, you know, portions of the, of the uh, expense and doing a prescribed burn. Uh, and rates typically for growing season burns are a little bit higher than the rates for uh, winter burns. But NRCS, the Forestry Commission and the Department of Conservation are the places you go in and talk to them and see what's available that particular year. Those programs change year to year, how much money they got, which one of those agencies is doing the cost share program, and you know what type of cost share program it might be. But, uh, but yeah, there is, uh, there is often assistance available out there for it. It seems like, uh, you know, the, the cost of, of burning an acre of ground, I mean, it's, it's going to be much less expensive than, say, planting a food plot. And, and the other benefit is that you're able to burn a lot more acreage, essentially fertilize a lot more acreage in one 
chunk uh, in one burn than you can if, if you're just planting food plot. So, you know, with that being said, you know, laying down that fertilizer uh, on these these larger chunks of, of timber ground, you know, as we kind of switch thinking away from wildlife and start to think about timber, how does a burn improve timber production and, and do the costs uh, of doing it? Is it made up for in, in increased timber production? You know, again, since we uh, are big burn promoters, you know, our unequivocal answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> however, if you talk to, you know, Mead or uh, some of the timber reeds or folks like that who have a lot of timber land, their worry about it is the risk part of it. Mm. And so not only a wildfire, which in my opinion, doing prescribed burning reduces the risk of wildfires, but from their standpoint, you know, having a burn somewhere and having that liability associated with it, and that is a big part of, you know, the tough thing about what we do. If um, you get the, the wrong burn at the wrong time, it smokes in, you know, 65, and it's five miles away, and there's smoke on the road, and there's an accident, some lawyer is going to find a way to try and sue you for it. So there is a, a liability associated with smoke management, and that's one of the biggest uh, concerns as a prescribed burn practitioner that we you know, look at is how do we manage our smoke and make sure we don't smoke in a community or smoke in a road somewhere late in the afternoon and cause an accident. These big timber companies are, they avoid doing it primarily because they've got a staff of lawyers that tell them, you know, this is too risky to take advantage of. And they're not in, you know, and historically, these timber companies did burn a lot. And when you look at a uh, pine stand, for instance, that uh, is regularly burned every four or five years, uh, the sweet gums are under control, the uh, vegetation and the competition for those pine trees is under control, it's burned well, there's no scorch, you're not scorching the base of the trees, you're not knocking the needles off the top of the trees, uh, you're just doing a nice, easy, controlled burn to try and control that competition. And the fertilizer effects that go along with that and potash and things like that, the growth of those trees is going to be higher. And the competition reduction from, let's say, sweet gums, which, uh, you know, both sweet gums, if you go on a pine stand at, you know, 300 trees per acre that's 20 years old, if you've got 500 trees per acre of little saplings growing on the ground, they're competing directly with that crop tree. You're not going to grow those young seedlings on the ground out to ever harvest those. So anything else that is a deep cat-rooted tree, for instance, uh, is competing directly with the crop tree. And by keeping those out of your stand and keeping them primarily grasses and forbs, then, you know, that, that uh, ability of that pine tree to take advantage of the site, nutrients and soil moisture and things like that is much higher and those trees grow at a better rate. Now, all that's negated the first time the wrong guy burns them there runs the head fire through it and scorches tops out all the trees, you know, kills half of them and stresses out the other half. And suddenly, you know, that landowner goes, yeah, this fire thing is not really working for me for growing my pine tree. But done right, it can be a, a valuable way to increase pine growth on an acre of ground. Well, Ted, it sounds like controlled burns, prescribed fire, just really fundamental, and but but also just a really excellent tool for guys that are managing forests, uh, managing wildlife, and it's some uh, if you can 
you should consider uh, doing, but there's also a lot of variables uh, in, included in that. And, and it, it really seems like it's going to benefit uh, a landowner to contact someone that's got a lot of experience like you guys they're thinking about burning and, you know, let them take a look at that, that unique property and see what, what needs to be done. I, I, I know I've learned a lot today. Uh, it kind of makes me want to go set my yard on fire a little bit, but uh, maybe <laughs> yeah, Joe, he's a professional. Right? Yeah. He's a professional <laughs> pyromaniac. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I better ask, well, ask, they do ask offer, my neighbors they, first. They, they do offer the training for it as well. And, and, you know, I would recommend anybody who is contemplating burning to go ahead and, you know, get the prescribed fire certification and, uh, you know, through Auburn or whoever it is, but, you know, and on our website with the prescribed fire council, we do show when those courses are available for folks. And you take the multi-day course and get certified as a prescribed burn practitioner. And uh, it, it's valuable. It gives you a good idea of the risk associated with it and the benefits associated with it. And a lot of times you'll be on a burn, you know, to see what's going on. And we've got, uh, you know, a lot of times we'll have uh, learn and burn days that uh, folks can come and participate in a fire somewhere and maybe carry a drip torch and you know, see it in action. So it makes a big difference. That's what you need, Joe. A learn and burn. I don't know. I'm just going to. There you go. I, I'm going to try the yard. I got to go for it. You know, sometimes you just <laughs> try, trial by fire. <laughs> Pardon the pun. That, All right. Well, <laughs> make sure you got good fire. <laughs> Well, he's a professional pyromaniac, Joe. You're just a pyromaniac. <laughs> well, Ted, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show again with us today. If folks do want to get in touch with you there at Bach and DeVos, uh, what's the best way to do it? I know y'all probably burning this time of year, but but how? What's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Uh, probably just uh, you go on our on our website. We've got email uh, contacts there. The website's BachandDeVos.com, and uh, you know, the contact information for phone numbers and emails is, is uh, all there on the site. How do you spell that, Ted? Uh, B-A-C-H-A-N-D-D-E-V-O-S dot com. Uh, my partner's name's Rod Bach. My name's Ted DeVos, and we combined the two last names into one word. and That's our website. Well, we'll be sure to put uh, put a link to the website there in the in the show notes. So y'all be sure to check it out. Well, Ted, uh, thanks again for the for the knowledge, and uh, y'all be safe out there. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Ted. Well, Clint, uh, what'd you learn, man? What are you gonna What you gonna do next on your property? You doing gonna do anything different based on what Ted had to say? I'm gonna go and and look at our burn zones and and see if we don't need to shrink them a little bit. I none of ours are are exactly really big, but I just want to make sure we're not burning too great an area, like he pointed out you know, and, and displacing any wildlife or putting them at risk. Yeah, it does seem like there's there's just a lot of variables that go into it. But, it, but man, you know, it's exciting when you think about all, all of the benefits, not only benefiting the wildlife, but benefiting the value of the land, the value of your timber. It, it does make you want to burn, but it does also seem very important to get professionals involved because, absolutely. I mean, one time letting it get away from you, and you can negate years of of good work with one one bad fire. Yeah, we call that pulling a bio. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, some learning about some new techniques for wildlife management as it relates to controlled burns. We appreciate y'all listening. Uh, if you'd like more information uh, on habitat management. Uh, for your land, be sure to email us uh, any questions you've got at pros at landhunting.com. We'll try to answer them on the show. 
That's pros at landhuntingog.com. As always, y'all stay safe. Good luck with uh, good luck with your turkey season.